Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is ED ECMO. All right, ED ECMO. This is Zach Shiner, and it is March 2021. And this month, we're going to talk about blood thinners. We're going to talk about anticoagulation. We're going to talk about how do we manage patients on ECMO, and what do we do about dealing with with blood thinners like heparin and bivalirudin. And we had a little intro to this uh, last year, maybe a year and a half ago, with Troy Sealhammer out of Mayo, kind of giving us the idea that, hey, bivalirudin might be a better option than heparin. But today I have actually a, a fantastic development that just occurred this month. Ryan Rivasecki uh, out of University of Pittsburgh and his team published in Critical Care Medicine uh, a great article, uh, a retrospective analysis of their use of bivalirudin versus heparin. And I'll cut straight to the chase. They had major bleeding complications, significantly less in the bivalirudin group versus the heparin group. This is 11% versus 40%, a huge difference. Uh, and this is a big deal. Thanks, Ryan, for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having us. Uh, we're pretty excited as a group to finally get this paper out there and really uh, support our love of bivalirudin. Yeah. So tell me about the study, retrospective trial, right? Yeah. So um, probably about 2016, um, Dr. Penny Sappington and myself kind of developed this uh, bivalirudin protocol for our ECMO patients. Um, as you said, the, the podcast you guys had with Dr. Sealhammer pretty well highlights uh, what I think a lot of clinicians struggle with, with the use of unfractionated heparin. And we finally said, you know what? It's time. Let's just try it. Let's go with it and see how it goes. Um, so then what we did is about 2016, 2017, we switched over entirely as an ECMO program to bivalirudin-based device prophylaxis. Um, we had always kind of kicked around like, oh, we should look this up. We should look kind of really go into our own internal data. And then uh, about a year ago, um, Dr. Pablo Sanchez and Dr. Ramadan said, you know what, it's time. We have the numbers. Let's just go for it. And we had maintained a pretty good um, database of all of our ECMO patients and pretty much just uh, did a retrospective dig through all the charts to get our to get our answer that we, I think we all kind of knew anecdotally, but it was really good to, to get the numbers behind it. Okay, so you guys made the change. But in this process, I... I Educate me, educate us on why do we even anticoagulate these patients? What is the need? Yeah, so I, I think the big thing is, so you have blood going against artificial membranes. So you have not only the cannula tubing, but also the oxygenator, the pump, etc. cetera. Uh, so I think you, anytime you have that, you bring an increased risk of thrombosis. And I think in your, your previous podcast, you guys talked a lot about that. And I think the only thing missing from that is you also have some really large bore cannulas, including a lot of various femoral and um, IJ veins. So there's also the downstream effect of like, are we giving enough anticoagulation for the low flow state in those distal extremities? And I think also reports upwards of 30 to 40%, and please don't quote that number of uh, post-accannulation thrombotic complications. So you have not only that, but also the maintenance of circuit patency. And, and actually, I'd say in COVID times is the most alarming I've ever seen this because a lot of people kind of have that approach of, oh, you know, if we need to change a circuit, we change a circuit. It's not that big of a deal. We'll go up on the vent settings, et cetera. And we've had a few patients in COVID times right now that while we're doing an oxygenator exchange, we watch their saturations drop into the 30s and 40s with a lot of peri-arrests. That's how reliant they are on the ECMO machine. 
So really keeping that circuit flowing and oxygenating and exchanging CO2 is, is pretty vital. Yeah, exchanging an oxygenator, I mean, if you can avoid it, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. And in your, your trial, you actually used, I thought was pretty good endpoints, which was pump exchange, oxygenator exchange, uh, thrombosis of a, of a cannula. So, so these are, these are big time complications when that happens. Tell me about heparin versus bivalrum just from a, from a pharmacologic standpoint. Absolutely. And it's, uh, as I'm sure most of our fellows at UPMC are tired of hearing me talk about it, but I really think it goes down to about a threefold thing. So unfractionated heparin relies on antithrombin-3 to create its, uh, its true anticoagulation activity. And much like when you're putting a patient onto cardiopulmonary bypass and you're seeing that development of heparin resistance and you're giving antithrombin-3 while you're giving more heparin to make sure that it works, that same phenomenon occurs on an extracorporeal circuit where you're becoming relatively antithrombin deficient. So because of that, your heparin doses are going to 30, 40, 50 units per kilo per hour. And you're kind of always struggling to maintain that good therapeutic level of anticoagulation. So because bivalorudin is a direct thrombin inhibitor, it, it has much less need on any other protein other than binding directly. So you get a lot less fluctuation in reliance on other proteins within the bloodstream. So one big perk is the lack of reliance on antithrombin-3. You also have much more favorable pharmacokinetics. You have a half-life, excluding some severe renal cases, of about 20 to 30 minutes. So what that allows you to do is if you need to put in a central line, if you need to put in a chest tube, et cetera, you're actually decreasing the amount of time you're off of anticoagulation because unlike heparin with the 60 to 90 minute half-life, you're holding the drug for less periods of time. And then whenever you want to restart the medication, you also have less time until you've really re-achieved true steady state and therapeutic anticoagulation. Likewise, if you have a patient that is experiencing some bleeding complication, by holding bivalorudin, you've effectively stopped the therapeutic anticoagulation faster. Um, and I know that everyone likes to say that heparin does have a reversal agent with protamine that bivalorudin does not. But functionally, by the time you would even try to do anything such as dialysis for bivalorudin, its half-life is pretty much already washed out and you don't have the effect anymore. And I think last but certainly not least is bivalorudin does not have any ability to cause heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. And uh, I think people go round and round with this argument that HIT is a very rare complication. I think anyone that practices in the ECMO population probably has an inflated view of how often we think it probably occurs, but it, it's not a very common phenomenon. But when it does happen, there are just extreme severe consequences to it. I think everyone has that horror story of someone on some device that ends up in HIT and you just cannot stop them from thrombosing nearly everything. So because you don't have that risk with bivalorudin, whenever you're seeing that platelet count drop on about day three, five, seven, you don't really have to do the entire workup of a heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. And I know a lot of four T-scores get thrown around in these patients, but I've just never really found it to be very indicative or predictive of the, the ECMO population just because they have so many other things going on. Um, a lot of them are coming either post-lung transplant or post-cardiotomy, and they're coming out of the operating room already with 40 or 50,000 platelets. So you're not necessarily seeing that platelet drop that we tend to pin on hit a lot. So those are really my three big things that I like to highlight on the differences between the two molecules. All right, so we've got differences. We've got some at least theoretic ideas that bivalorudin would be better than heparin. We know just from practice that it's difficult uh, to maintain levels, to, to just 
I mean, this is very similar to Coumadin and Xeralto and, and all the news. Exactly. Uh, as an outpatient where even though we don't have a reversal agent for this, you know, we just see less bleeding complications as a result of those medications. And bivalirudin would have, it would have a similar profile to that. So from a theoretic standpoint, it makes sense. Your article says it works better, but I think we need to dive into this a little bit because when you're looking at retrospective data, uh, there's a lot of problems with it. And I think maybe the major thing that I see in your article is, can we really compare those two groups together? Can we compare the groups that got heparin versus the group that got bivalirudin and say, these are similar enough where we can look at the complications and say they're, they're relevant. What are your thoughts on that? I completely agree. And I think that was um, one of the biggest holdups in us really getting this data out there is when you have a retrospective study, you're not randomizing to anything. Um, and that's even more fraught with there when you have smaller sample sizes just to things being due to chance. So we really held on to the data for a while to make sure that we we got a total sample size of almost 300 patients to try to make the cohorts look a little more homogenous uh, as we could. Uh, and I do think with our, our study as well, a trickier part is we didn't do anything kind of overlapping in a time period. We pretty much made a whole house switch from heparin to bivalve. So in, in our table, you can see that pretty much after 2016, we stopped using heparin in all of our ECMO patients. So you do have multiple moving pieces. So one of the ways we tried to work around that is one, we, we did do a Cox um, analysis to try to control for some of our covariates that may have driven any potential difference. And then we also followed that up with a degree of kind of mini subgroup analyses. We looked specifically just at our medical populations or just at our surgical populations because uh, we are a relatively high volume lung transplant center. And because those populations swing and fluctuate over time was this driven by just the lung transplant, or was this driven by just pneumonia cases that had severe ARDS? Um, so by trying to control through a little bit of that with a little bit of our statistics, we still feel pretty confident behind it. And I think the other reason we feel very confident, despite the fact that it's retrospective, is the effect sizes that we saw within our, our study that you alluded to in the intro were so large um, that I'm, I'm pretty confident that a couple of patients in either group that may have been a medical admission versus surgical admission, the results are robust enough to hold up. Uh, specifically in the, in the blood product administration sides, I mean, we are talking almost 2.5 liters of PRBCs versus less than a liter. So I think a little bit of swing in either way, we, we still would feel pretty confident that the bivalorutin was the better drug here. Okay, so let me just go through a couple of things that I saw in your paper because I thought it was very well done. Um, Bivalirudin, like you said, got primarily used in the later years. So we have to at least think about the idea. Did our management change? Did we get better at treating these patients in general uh, during that time frame? Nothing really to suggest that that happened. Is that correct? Yeah, th that is correct. Um I know that there had been some theories of, of um, specifically like the Michigan group of pushing up your hemoglobin to improve oxygenating um, carrying capacity that could have driven some of the PRBCs. Um, but when we looked at the true ELSO definition of a major bleeding event, we excluded any of that being a major bleeding event, just transfusing purely to drive a hemoglobin up. So uh, I think that answered your question there. Okay. And then a much higher percentage of the patients who got bivalirudin were for respiratory failure versus the transplant. So I'm guessing that your transplant program is still a little bit more inclined to use heparin. Is that right? 
Um, I don't necessarily think that's correct. So what we kind of saw is um, we had a little bit of um, dip in our lung transplant volume around that early 2016, 2017, and some of the 2018 period. Um, so because of that, I think the numbers are lower, but we still now from is our transplant volumes picking back up. Any pre and or post lung transplant patient is only run on bivalirudin right now. Okay. Yeah, I thought I was trying to think of that there, this would have a major effect on thrombosis, a patient that's going in for a transplant versus a patient with ARDS. And I don't know if I can come to a solid conclusion on that, but, but maybe you do. No, I, you know, the only group that I think you could potentially make that type of a, a commentary on would be the, the true post-operative lung transplant that probably more than likely came out with either primary graft dysfunction or had a lot of uh, hemorrhagic complications in the operating room that kind of necessitated large volume resuscitation uh, that could potentially make them a little bit more prothrombotic just due to the amount of blood product that they received in the OR prior to ECMO cannulation. Uh, but, but other than that, I, I agree with you. Um, I think for the most part, when you're looking at true circuit thrombosis, like we did, it's still pretty much going to be a case about the anticoagulation more so than about the patient that the cannula is replaced into. Yeah. Yeah. And I like how you guys did per day on ECMO or hour on ECMO. I know that the durations were fairly similar between the two groups, which is nice just so that we don't say, well, you know, at, uh, at day 17, of course, they're going to be more likely to get thrombotic events than at day one. Uh, so that seems to also play out to, to give us some semblance between the two groups. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That was, uh, in kind of as you had said earlier about the retrospective data, that was one of the ways that we were trying to, to mitigate some of those limitations by really, really using each patient as their own control. All right. So, so we've got these two groups. We had a, a, a much improved outcomes in the bivalve room. But can you take me through that? What did you actually find? We had major bleeding complications were improved. What else? So we had um, major bleeding events were decreased in the bivalve rooting group. The overall blood product utilization, um, uniquely the PRBCs, the FFP, as well as platelet transfusions were all decreased significantly in the bivalve rooting group. And there was also a uh, about a 50% reduction in the amount of in-circuit thrombosis that was achieved. And um, I'm not sure uh, how a lot of the programs out there are, but our, our perfusionists do a really nice check of looking at any sort of clot that may be forming on the oxygenator at the start of each of their shifts. Uh, and we actually went ahead with this and just said this was true. Something had to be done to the circuit, not just a, a little fleck of blackout on the outer ring of the oxygenator. This was something that really needed to be a circuit manipulation. Um, so those are really the ways that we focused it. So we wanted to also say that, well, yes, you could argue you're transfusing less, but if you're not coming with another alternative. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is we wanted to make sure we weren't causing people to bleed more by decreasing the probability of clot. And likewise, we weren't causing them to clot more by decreasing the likelihood to bleed. Mm. Yeah, I did notice also in your inclusion criteria, um, which may be an effect that we, we need to at least think about as far as comparison of the two groups, was that you excluded patients that got crossed over. Is that right? Yeah, we, we did. Um, and it wasn't an overwhelmingly high cohort of patients that we excluded for that, but we did want to kind of keep it a little bit cleaner. Um, so kind of in that 20 to 16, 20 to 17 range, there is still a little bit uh, of wavering on if we were going to make full sale changeovers. So because of that, we wanted to make this truly just heparin versus bivalirudin 
Um, so I think the other part that you could say is in the earlier years, probably the 2013 through 2016, anyone that had a high enough suspicion for HIT was switched over to bivalirudin, and those patients we did not include, even though it was before the entire switchover. Got it. Okay, so uh, something to just take home from this, or just to make sure we keep in our mind, was these these were all VV patients, and the application over to VA ECMO could make sense, but uh, as as you allude to in your paper, not all the previous trials have looked at that. What are your thoughts just as far as extrapolating this data to VA ECMO? Uh, so my initial response is going to say I have a wonderful pharmacy resident who's pulling that data together for us right now, so to stay tuned. Um, but I, I think the, the, the true extrapolation, I think, is a little bit tough there because you have a whole different set of issues that you're going to run into in the coagulating at the VA ECMO patient. I think, uh, as, you're probably, as you're well aware, the, the need for anticoagulation goes up um, to prevent stroke. And then the complications of that thrombus that forms if you're not adequately anticoagulated also goes up. Um, I think the post-accanulation VTE on a VV patient is obviously very different than a probable ECMO and uh, that ends in a stroke. Um, so I think while this is very promising and we're hopeful that we see the exact same thing in our VA ECMO patients, I would be a, a little bit cautious to say completely that all VA should be able to be managed the exact same. Uh, I think one interesting thing when we were comparing the two drugs is the what's referred to as the smoke effect with the bivalirudin, and because it is broken down by uh, plasma esterases in the blood, that if there would be stagnant blood left into the left ventricle for a not appropriately vented VA ECMO patient, and that's sitting there too long, that there is some potential risk that bivalirudin may in fact not be the best drug in that setting with the stagnant blood as opposed to heparin that has the little bit longer half-life in there. Um, so very hopeful that we'll see the same thing in our cardiogenic shock VA ECMO patients, but uh, doing our due diligence and making sure we write that up. Ooh, I love those points right there. Okay, so so just so I can get wrap my, my mind around all of this, bivalirudin, more consistent, shorter half-life, Therefore, thrombotic events like where blood is sitting around for long periods of time, heparin may have some benefit. So at least from a theoretic standpoint, that aspect may be better for heparin. But as far as just theoretically on a VA side, uh, the more consistent anticoagulation, I'm guessing, would lead to better thrombotic complications. Would you agree or no? I 100% agree. And I think um, a lot of the work that's been done with bivalirudin versus heparin previously, pretty across the board has demonstrated better time and therapeutic range, kind of that classic anticoagulation marker um, to all of the points that you just mentioned. So it's really just that that next proving step, that more patient-centered outcome step of did this better level of anticoagulation actually relate to less thrombotic events and less bleeding events? Okay, so in your opinion, today, I'm going to go put somebody on eCPR uh, or on, on ECMO for cardiac arrest. Would you choose heparin or would you choose bivalirudin? So I would 100% choose bivalirudin. And our practice still right now is we will go on to ECMO with a bolus of, of heparin just from a, it's a little bit more reliable. It's already in a vial form. It's easy to drop in that emergency setting. You're not worried about reconstituting things. So I would go on with unfractionated heparin, and then as soon as they're deemed stable to uh, be started on systemic anticoagulation, I'd put them right onto bivalirudin. Oh, so I, I think I might have misinterpreted this. Are all of your patients started with heparin? 
Yes. So we um, we actually bolus heparin, um, pretty similar to what's been reported out there, somewhere between a three to 5,000 units of IV heparin to go on to pump. And then after that, we immediately start the bivalorudin. Okay. Okay. And, and that's your recommendation even today? It is. And, and I don't think there's anything, I'm not opposed to going on with bivalorudin by any means. Uh, it's just purely operationally. Um, the last thing I would want is a, a hold up and actually initiating an ECMO run while you're waiting for the bivalorudin to get reconstituted and to get on and drawn up into a syringe. Um, we actually have at our institutions little ECMO kits that we take whenever we're going to cannulate a patient that has all of our kind of emergency drugs in there. And one of those is a vial of heparin. So it's very easy for the nurses or physician to drop three, 5,000 units out of the vial and bolus it right before initiation. Hmm. Okay. Uh, you also mentioned about cost and this compounding the two vials. Uh, teach me about that. Yeah, so the, the bivalorudin vial is 250 milligrams, and historically our drug concentration here was 500 milligrams in a 100cc bag. And we did some medication use evaluations and saw that the ECMO patient just doesn't require nearly as much bivalorudin to become therapeutically anticoagulated. And I think that's what we're seeing in a lot of these DTIs. I think it's very similar to our gatroban for general HIT management. Those initial doses that we thought were just way too high. So we looked at it and we change out our bags every 24 hours. And most of our patients, we were ending up throwing away about 75% of all of the drug because we were changing out our bags. They just hadn't infused that much. Um, so what we were able to do is, is really make two bags to go to the 125 milligrams and 100 ml concentration, which for most patients lasts anywhere between 18 and 24 hours. And because of that, we took what was two vials per bag down to a half vial per bag. Um, so all in all, we, we cut our, our bivalorudin cost by nearly 75% um, with just that very simple intervention. And, and I will say it's one piece that I, we weren't able to add into this manuscript, but I think there's, a, there's drug cost and there's total cost. And as we start to evaluate blood products, which are very expensive, oxygenator equipments, thrombotic complications, potentially spending that little bit of extra money still even with the split doses of bivalorudin results in a long-term savings to the health system in general. Yeah, I think that would be a fairly easy argument to make. So just the cost though of the medications alone with your with your compounding vial uh, concept, what, what are the costs? So, I mean, they fluctuate a lot. Um, whenever we were doing a lot of this work, the, the average wholesale price of bivalorudin before we had done the switch was about $1,000 a bag, um, which is very alarming. Um, but the cost had come down over the years, as well as the splits. We were able to drop it down to about $150 a bag. Um, so going from $1,000 per patient day down to $150 per patient day from 2016 to where we are right now in 2020 has really made this, I think, a lot more achievable. So whenever we uh, would do a, an ECMO course, a training course at our institution, that's the, the number one comment we get from the audience is, my P&T department would have absolute nightmares if I told them we're switching all of our ECMOs to bivalorudin because of the cost. Um, but, but I think it can be done affordably. I think if you look at some of the prices right now, the, the drugs coming down in cost and you can do like we did and try to find ways to, to save a little bit extra money. And if it's truly the better drug, then it's definitely worth the extra spend. Mm. Okay. Uh, super cool. Great article. I mean, this is, this is a game changer for, I think a lot of us and, and just thinking about how to move forward. I think we need more and more data in this area, uh, to convince 
convince the masses. Um, I want to kind of take a different vein and just, just get your thoughts on a couple of things. First one here is what about these patients that start bleeding? How do you manage them? Um, do you, are you okay with running a circuit without anticoagulation? How long are you okay with that? Tell me, tell me about the patient that is actively bleeding and I'm trying to somehow maintain their ECMO circuit. Yeah, it's a fantastic question. And I think a, a struggle in a lot of cases. So I think one of the big things to look at there is how much are the, is the patient actually flowing on their ECMO circuit? That patient that's flowing above two to a half, three liters, I'm much more willing to say, let's stay off for 24, 48, 72 hours and see how it's doing. Um, again, and in this cohort too, I think you have, you have a surgical bleed and you have truly the anticoagulation related bleed. Um, the patient that is a surgical post-transplant patient, potentially they just need an operating visit and to fix the surgical bleed. And in that case, we can pretty safely go back on to, to anticoagulation when the surgical bleed is fixed. Um, we have run many of our patients 100% off of anticoagulation. I think the trauma VV ECMO patient is becoming a little more common across the country. And those patients when we accept them for ECMO, we pretty much say it's going to be a dry run and we're not going to give them any anticoagulation for that. So what we try to do in those cases is run that, that flow a little higher as we can and just watch. A lot of them will even put on uh, a 0.01 or 0.02 dose of bivalrudin and essentially say we're giving them super DVT prophylaxis. So we're not actually targeting therapeutic anticoagulation and really maybe just a PTT of around 40 just to hopefully prevent the active thrombus. Um, but in the kind of not severe bleeding patient, I mean, I think that's a, again, a perk of the bivalrudin is you can hold it for a few hours and kind of evaluate what is the bleeding looking like. And whenever you believe it's safe, you can kind of slowly ramp it back up if you need to. Um, I, I can't remember the group. I think it's somewhere, maybe Toronto that's actually evaluating, trying to get patients enrolled in a completely dry ECMO study. And I think that would be a fantastic world if we could get there, um, create certain criteria, high flows, good cannulas, et cetera, and, and not have to use any. And I'm guessing these bleeding complications that, that we even see in this paper would be dramatically less. Yeah, I think that's a trial that needs to get done. I think we, especially in the ECPR world, we've got a trauma patient on top of a cardiac arrest patient, and we have all these different con conflicting things that are going against each other, whether we should or should not anticoagulate them. And having that perspective on, or I think maybe just a safety idea that we could keep them off of anticoagulation would be nice. All right, um, last thing here, you, you're out there in Pittsburgh, you guys are doing amazing stuff. Uh, tell me things, teach us in the ECMO community, what can we glean from your program in anticoagulation or in completely other things? What are you guys doing that we should be looking at? Yeah, I think um, from our program, and um, hopefully I'll speak for our entire program here, I think the biggest thing we can say is we've kind of really kind of worked with all of our community hospital settings in the last year, um, which was probably accelerated with COVID, but really creating that open lines of communication. So when a patient is kind of heading down a route of a potential ECMO run, there's daily follow-up from our ECMO team here at our kind of our flagship at Presbyterian Hospital for watching every blood gas, seeing what's going on. So if the decision's made that this patient is an ECMO candidate and they need it, 
all the wheels are already in motion. We're not having any delays. Um, we're getting them into our system and we're getting them onto ECMO with the ECMO specialists as soon as possible. Um, and with that, I think it's really become a truly collaborative approach on all of that. And that's, I think, the, the last part I'll say that I think our team here has done exceedingly well at was we've really, really made it a true multidisciplinary team that takes care of the VVA and even our VA ECMO patients. We have surgical backup. We have critical care intensivists that are trained in ECMO programs. We have a pharmacist rounding on these patients to manage the anticoagulation, to look at their sedation. Our bedside nurses here in the CTICU are absolutely phenomenal at identifying any potential complication or any issue and special needs that may arise from the ECMO patient. And our perfusionist service here as well. So our perfusionists do sit ECMO um, on our unit and they really make sure and take great care of the circuit. So all of those things together, I think is really what leads us to have a, a really successful program with really great outcomes. Mm, that's fantastic. Communication, integration of, of all the specialists and, and organizing of the system. I mean, that's, those are the key factors. Uh, Ryan, anything else for today? I think that's it. Just really uh, on behalf of all of our ECMO team here, thank you for having us. Uh, love talking about anticoagulation and, and hopefully we'll be able to come back on here in a, in a little bit and talk about our VA. Excellent. I can't wait to see this trial. So take home today, bivalirudin shown to be better than heparin in a retrospective trial. About 300 total ECMO runs. Is that right, Ryan? Yep, that's correct. Uh, so big study and and to look forward to increased use of bivalirudin over heparin for these VV patients. And hopefully we'll have some data on VA very shortly. Ryan, thank you so much. Thank you.